Okay, virtual show of hands. How many of you have heard the phrase, stay woke? Just like a heart or type in the comments. It's a popular phrase in social justice circles, but let's come back to that in a little while. Now let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. <laughs> let's start with this text. Anyone ever heard of the Odes of Solomon? Different than Song of Solomon, the Odes of Solomon is a collection of early Christian worship material dating back to the first and second centuries, with most recent scholars pushing it more toward the first century. We have gathered that it was written within the same time period as all other texts in our New Testament. Some scholars think that the Odes were collected from different communities, so there's not one author. The title itself was tacked on later, probably about a thousand years after Solomon, so they would have little to do with him. We have no information about when or where they were discovered. The one full collection we have was found in 1909 amongst the research materials of a well-respected and well-traveled, if unorganized, scholar named J.R. Harris. He never could remember how he got a hold of the papyrus, but we are glad he finally cleaned his office and came upon them. Oh, so kids, actually this part is extremely important. If you don't get anything else from this sermon, take this lesson with you. Should you decide to become a religion scholar, it is very important that you clean your room. At almost a third of the size of the Psalms, the Odes are the largest trove of early Christian worship material ever found in its entirety. It is the actual material from worship of some early Christ movements and represents certain kinds of early Christianity and belief, practice, and framing of the world. They look and sound like Psalms, except the language is Christocentric. While we don't know the origin of composition, the closeness to the Psalms suggests strong ties to Israel, and the language of Syriac leads us to Syria. The odes are generally multi-voiced with God or Christ speaking. I imagine very much like a play, a responsive reading, with one person reading one part and another person or group reading the next section and so forth within the same ode. But ode three is different. All we have is one voice singing about the love between her and the Lord and Christ. This love is expressed as unification. History and religion scholar Susan Ashbrook Harvey points out that the odes rely heavily on metaphor. The language is used to describe this union between the writer and God and Christ. It's beautiful in its wrestling and authenticity. You can hear the ode is struggling to find the words to aptly describe the closeness of the relationship. It's a merging, a mingling, a mixing, like water mixed with wine. The metaphor reveals the oneness with Christ. Now we don't know anything about the writer's journey to this point except what she shares about how she got there. Right at the beginning of this text, we are told that there are members alongside this person. The I in this text is raised up by these members. So then let us deduce that there is a support system in place. There are people who hold and keep this person, who pray for this person, who want the best for this person, who claim them as part of their community. Acceptance is a very liberating thing. Accepting a person is part of the work of loving that person. It is being compassionate. Think about your communities. What does it look like to be accepted in your families, in your church, in your clubs? Who is in them? Who is accepted? Is the acceptance rooted in love? You can hear Johannine leanings in this ode, reminding us of John 13, 34 that says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. The Otis says, I am raised up by them and the Lord loves me. Indeed, I would not have known how to love the Lord except that God had continuously loved me. 
We love because we were first loved. We learn this love from a continuous past of being love. Biblical scholar Michael Latka also notes the centrality of love in this text, and it's clearly seen in the frequency in which love and its synonyms are used, about a dozen times in 11 verses. He points to a reciprocity of love that transfers the state of mutual love, unmistakably in the past, and achieves an expression of continuance. It is a practice. The Otis decides in the first line to put on the love of the Lord. It is active. What if every day we recommitted ourselves to putting on the love of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord? What if we took seriously the line from the Lord's prayer and actively practiced God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Is it possible then to make faith and hope immortal through the, our union with the one who does not die? The sustaining image throughout this pericope is one of love and what is born because of and through love. The entire overall emotional effect is love that is built on trust. The writer trusts the love of God because it has been continuous. She trusts the community that raises her up. There's no rejection, no suspicion, no envy, nothing deceitful. This love allows the author to feel safe and valued. This acceptance allows for confidence to flourish and learning to happen. Laka writes that the ode stresses the importance of knowledge, which is closely connected with unity of redemption, of salvation, and is expressed in the imagery of love. The rhetorical question posed by the Otist, who is able to recognize love, is the foundation for the wisdom written right above it. I would not have known, except that God had continuously loved me. There is space in this loving and trusting union for us to pay attention, to be alert, to be woke, so that we might recognize the paths that are shown to us by the Holy Spirit. As the Gospel of Luke and Matthew remind us, we must love the Lord God with our hearts, our souls, our strength, and our minds. Ode 3 tells us that to love is to be wise, understanding, and awakened. Be woke, as I mentioned before, is a well-known phrase. It serves as a reminder that there are many insidious ways in which oppression and social injustice exist, so we must remain vigilant and aware, woke at all times. It is with our collective consciousness that we are able to release ourselves from the tentacles of racism, sexism, homophobia, ageism, ableism, transphobia, classism, and the list goes on and on. And spoiler alert, they are all intricately connected. So how do we do this work collectively, particularly in a society that seems hypersensitive and desensitized at the all to same time, that's traumatized, in a society where the question shifts so fast that it seems impossible to formulate an answer? The author of O3 provides a model. This love that creates a oneness with God can be applied to our communities, to our nation, and to our world. That love is built on trust and knowledge. This trust is built and the knowledge attained only when we are open and honest, when we are authentic and kind, when we are aware and when we empathize. It's built when we let time and space into our relationship building. This has to be a conscious push against our microwave society so that we may allow for relationships to blossom. This year we have experienced so much devastation. It is hard to stay present to all of it while maintaining our own selves. It would honestly be so much easier to just tune out. But I encourage you to stay present, be woke, test every spirit and measure it by truth, by justice. And if sometimes you find it hard to find your community and all the noise around you, you can use a trick that I use. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, I imagine some of you are familiar with the popular show that used to air on PBS, yes? 
It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. I keep close to me a quote of his that helps me when we are in the midst of devastation. And I'm not sure where to turn. Fred Rogers would, um, some of you know as a Presbyterian minister, uh, gave this advice for parents to help with their children deal with disaster. He often told this story when he was a boy and saw scary things on the news. He said, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words and I am always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. 2020 has been one disaster stacked on top of another, from COVID-19 to police violence, from natural disasters to massive explosions. In this moment, it is important to take a breath and as Reverend Rogers said, look for the helpers. They are, as he would call them, your neighbors. They are your community. They are, as the Otis called them, members. They are the ones standing with Jesus, standing with the marginalized, standing with those who are oppressed, standing with you. Look for the helpers and you won't feel quite so alone. You won't feel quite so scared because just like the author of our ancient text, you are supported by these members. You can feel a renewal of your strength that will allow you to continue working from a centered core of love and compassion that aids you in continuing to learn about the different ways in which inequality rears its ugly head in our country and in our world. This love that is built on trust allows us to continue to fight for our collective evolution. This is our starting place and we must start from this place together. It is our communal endeavor. So when you wake up every morning, commit yourself, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength to love a divine love that has been taught to you and your ancestors over the ages, a love that leads you toward awareness. Like our ancient author, make it a part of your daily practice. Put on the love of the Lord so that you too can walk bravely toward the knowledge that will lead you to be wise, understanding, and awakened. Stay woke. Hallelujah.